Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On this week's show, Malcolm Gaskell and Claire Jackson, two shortlisted writers for the 2022 Wolfson History Prize. Malcolm Gaskell is Emeritus Professor of Early Modern History at the University of East Anglia. One of Britain's leading experts in the history of witchcraft, his works include the highly acclaimed Witchfinders, a 17th century English tragedy, and Between Two Worlds, How the English Became Americans. And today we're going to be talking about Malcolm's new book, which is The Ruin of All Witches, Life and Death in the New World, which has just recently been shortlisted for the 2022 Wilson History Prize. Malcolm, welcome to Little Atoms. Thanks very much, Neil. So the book is set in 1651 in Springfield, in what is now Massachusetts, then obviously there's one of the New England colonies. Tell us, first of all, why, remind us why people, because most of the people involved are from England or Wales, so why were people leaving the old world and going to the new world at this time? Well, we have this very um, pervasive image of people leaving England, Britain, the British Isles, going to the new world for religious freedom, um, you know, to get away from persecution, Puritans, trying to build a new Jerusalem. And of course, there are some people that are like that. But the overwhelming majority of migrants go because there aren't the, um, the right kind of economic opportunities at home to start a household, to start a family and so on. So they go to America where there's land, um, hoping to make their fortunes. And Springfield is a rather an unusual place because it's founded from the beginning as a company town. That's to say it's a place where people can go to work and profit. It's not primarily founded for its uh, godliness, for its godly mission, although, you know, people do try at least there to uh, to be pious and religious. As it happens, I've actually been to Springfield a few times, the right. modern Springfield. So tell us what Springfield would have been like when it was first founded. Well, initially in the mid-1630s, when the very first building goes up, it's really just a plain, rather a boggy plain, um, on the banks of the um, uh, of the Connecticut River. And of course, there are Native Americans who are living there. Um, and that gradually, the same story in so many other places, the Native Americans gradually are pushed off the land. Although, you know, the relations with the uh, the English settlers are at least for the first two or three decades relatively peaceable. But that essentially, by European standards, there's nothing there. 
the way that the uh, the William Pynchon, who founds uh, Springfield, would have conceived it is that this is a wilderness, and that both in the Puritan imagination that both meant somewhere where you could kind of rebuild godliness, which they felt had gone astray in the old world, but it was also somewhere to be exploited. In fact, they felt God wanted them to exploit it economically, to build and to make something out of the land. New England does look still very much like old England, um, the climate, for instance, and, and you know just the trees and the salt marshes and the fields look very much like home. And you yeah. mentioned in the book that you know these people could have kidded themselves during the day while they were tending the fields, that they were still at home, but at night they could not do that. So let's talk about some of the, the dangers that they faced, or at least that they thought they faced. Yeah, well, you're right. New England does look like old England um, geographically, but that by this time that England is actually quite economically advanced. So there's an awful lot to miss when you go abroad. So, for example, that there are no shops, obviously, and uh, you might suddenly find that you're, you need a horse and that you can't get hold of a horse or a horse is brought in and then the horse needs a shoe and then you need a blacksmith and so on. So there are all these trades and opportunities which people have become quite habituated to in the old world, which are suddenly lacking. So that's one challenge which is presented to them. But they also feel that they are a long way from home. They don't automatically become Americans in their mentalities, far from it. They actually feel that um, England, quite rightly, is 3,000 miles away, and that some of them are very homesick, and they feel that they're really on the edge of the known world, and that at night, when they're lying in their beds, they do they wonder what's out there. And of course, there are often quite tense, or at least sort of... Um, you know, rather sometimes estranged relations with the local Native Americans, and that there are always this danger that that is actually going to tip over into conflict. So in their imagination, sometimes there is this sense that uh, they conflate the fear of the local Indians with the fears that they have of the supernatural world and of demons and of witches, all the things that they were actually with, they're familiar with at home. So the story in the book centres around a married couple, Hugh and Mary Parsons, who were labourers living in Springfield at this time. Tell us something about who they were. So um, Hugh and Mary Parsons, the doomed couple at the centre of the story, Hugh is a brickmaker. And like I was just saying, that they are, um, the, the people of Springfield suddenly find that they want things and that one of the things they want by the middle of the 1640s is bricks. They want to build chimneys because wooden chimneys um, obviously catch fire, but also that there's starting to be a, a greater stratification of the social order there. So some people want chimneys because they are a form of conspicuous consumption. So Hugh Parsons actually is brought in and becomes quite an important person because everybody depends upon him to make bricks and brick making is quite a specialist skill. Mary Parsons, Mary Lewis, as she is when she arrives in Springford in the early 1640s, is rather a troubled woman who comes from Wales. She's had a broken marriage. Her husband bullied her and then deserted her. She felt she had nothing left. And she went to the new world, like so many others, seeking to rebuild her life. And they meet and they fall in love, one presumes, and they are married in 1645. But then they find that it is they are insuperable odds, really, in building a world for themselves that is happy and is fruitful. 
And one of the other main protagonists of the story is um, William Pinchon, who was the sort of founder and leader of Springfield. Tell us something about him as well. Pynchon is a really extraordinary man who uh, emerges from obscurity uh, in a small Essex village in the 1630s, goes to the New World. And he is essentially, he's an entrepreneur, I suppose we would call him. Um, He's kind of good at lots of things, but he is certainly a natural leader. And he is definitely a businessman. He wants to profit from the trading beaver fur, which is extremely lucrative in the old world. And he works out quite early on in America that he really needs to go to where the source of the beaver um, is to be found. So he goes from the East Coast over to the Connecticut Valley, 100 miles west. And that's why really he sets Springfield up where it is. But the thing about Pynchon is that he is not just the local landowner. He's also the local magistrate. He's a key employer. Um, He's also a creditor. And so that he makes everyone's lives there possible, but it also sets up a kind of tension because these people who want to be rather independent in the new world find themselves extremely dependent upon him all the time. And that does create a certain kind of friction with their leader. This is, at its heart, a story of accusations of witchcraft. This is a time of religious certainty but also extreme sort of religious schisms as well particularly in the new world yeah tell us something about what role the idea of witchcraft itself played in all of this well witchcraft it always brings together several uh influences or ideas at once and they create a kind of perfect storm and when you get that perfect storm you get accusations so there is the idea that witches are involved in a kind of anti-Christian conspiracy. And this is an old medieval idea. It's the idea that they are a secret sect. They meet under the cover of darkness and they are plotting um, the downfall of all good Christian people and are in a kind of war between Christ and Antichrist, which does become more polarized around this time in the 17th century, which of course is a time of all sorts of ructions, not least the, the civil war in the British Isles, which is an extremely Um, religiously as well as politically polarised event. But the witchcraft is also about tension between neighbours. And so the the idea of the witch is not just as somebody who deals with demons and, as I say, is is a kind of an anti-Christian heretic, but also an enemy in your midst. She's also your neighbour who might smile at you in the morning, but it actually is secretly using black magic, plotting your downfall. And really, when you get those kind of religious ideas and those economic ideas and those social and cultural ideas and also the legal possibility of prosecuting witches, which is not a constant, but when um, at a certain time, when it feel, the time feels right to prosecute witches, then you find that when all these factors come together, then you find individuals start becoming not just accused and suspected, but actually prosecuted as well. So these are, you know, the importation of old medieval beliefs into the new world. But also this is a time where we are starting to see the rumblings of new, what we would think of as modern ideas like science. And, you know, while this would not necessarily have impacted the day-to-day life of a a brickmaker out on the frontier, how does this sort of beginning of the clash of ideas lead into the sort of general climate? Well, one of the interesting things about the witch hunt, if we want to call that, uh, you know, call it broadly as an event. The thing about the witch hunt is that it doesn't really take place in the Middle Ages. There are some witch trials, 
But the classic period of the witch hunt is the early modern period. So that's the later 16th and the 17th centuries. And the thing about the early modern period is it is a period of transition and that that transition isn't always comfortable and easy. It's often extremely fraught between old and new ideas, structures, ways, practices, and so on. And that so that what you see in witchcraft trials are the kind of birth pangs of the modern world, uh, not just modernity overtaking early modernity, because these are historical constructs anyway. Nobody at the time thought in these terms, but you do see a mixture and it's not always a particularly comfortable mixture. So one of the ways in which you see the old uh, impacting, uh, or rather the new impacting upon the old, is the other demands which are being made for legal evidence. And this is true of all witchcraft trials, but it's also very relevant to the witchcraft trial at the centre of this story. Now, I'm not going to give everything away, um, spoiler alert, but that it does become very difficult in Boston to prosecute Hugh and Mary Parsons for witchcraft because actually, perhaps surprisingly, the standards of evidence are rather high. And that because witchcraft is a secret crime committed supposedly under the cover of darkness, under a kind of diabolical obscurity, that really that the evidence they have to rely on is what we would think of as hearsay. And you find that even in the mid-17th century, there are many people who just don't think that's enough for what is, after all, a capital crime. And finally, what does it mean to you that the book has been shortlisted for the Wolfson? Well, I still can't quite believe it. I'm um, absolutely thrilled, naturally, and extremely honoured to be um, to be nominated for this prize. Um, I think the thing about it particularly is that, you know, for many years now, I've been working to communicate what I feel is the best kind of academic research with the most accessible kind of writing in order to engage people with history in the past, a wider reading public. And that because the Wolfson Prize recognised as achievement in the area, I do feel um, particularly thrilled to be in the frame for that. So I've been talking to Malcolm Gaskell. We've been talking about his book, The Ruin of All Witches, Life and Death in the New World, which is out in the UK from Alan Lane. Malcolm, thank you so much for telling me about it. Thank you very much for your time, Neil. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Claire Jackson is the senior tutor of Trinity Hall, Cambridge University. She has presented a number of highly successful programmes on the Stuart dynasty for the BBC and is the author of Charles II in the Penguin Monarchs series. And today we're going to be talking about Claire's new book, which is Devil Land, England Under Siege, 1588 to 1688, which is shortlisted for this year's Wollstone Prize. Claire, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. Let's talk first of all about where the name Devil Land comes from. Who coined that term? Uh, the name Devil Land was coined by an anonymous Dutch pamphleteer in 1652 uh, who called uh, England Deufeland. It played on a medieval Latin pun whereby the English, the Angli, had traditionally been cherished as cherubic angels and jelly. But as this Dutch pamphleteer argued in 1652, the English seemed anything but angels. They looked more like fallen angels, diabolical devils. Uh, three years earlier, they had put their divinely ordained and anointed King Charles I on trial publicly. They'd executed him. They had a new Republican regime that seemed totally unrepentant and was now contemplating uh, declaring war on the Dutch Republic. So Deufelland was how, to many continental observers, England appeared in the mid-17th century. Indeed, you describe England at this time in you know, the way we would describe uh, a modern society as a failed state. Tell us a bit more about why. Yes, that was a deliberately kind of provocative term, but um, it was to try and underscore the extent to which to foreign observers, England did seem like a sort of, I think I describe it as a sort of discomforting byword for seditious rebellion, religious extremism and regime change. And I think if you think about that moment in 1652, when this Dutch pamphleteer talked about devil land, you know, England had been bitterly divided within itself for more than a decade. Uh, brothers had taken up arms against one another for King uh, of Parliament. Countless wartime atrocities, premeditated massacres, a huge number of new different religious sects, extensive ethnic cleansing, especially in Ireland. And that was part of the sort of Stuart Atlantic archipelago and a sort of constant threat of foreign invasion. And you know, we tend to forget that the numbers of people who lost their lives in the mid-century civil wars, you know, was greater than those who lost their lives in um, on the British side in World Wars One and Two put together. So the huge amount of sort of dislocation and uncertainty was really what I wanted to sort of capture. Yeah, I was going to say, this is not just a century of, you know, disinterested foreign observers looking at us with curiosity. It is literally a, a century of constant foreign interference, invasion and non-invasion, isn't it? Yes. Um, and I think that's really what I was trying to capture, that so much of England's instability and vulnerability is both alarming, but it's also very tempting to foreign observers. And much of what I was trying to do was bring together sort of diplomatic history, sort of foreign policy, 
but also dynastic history and look at the Stuarts um, as rulers of this unstable Atlantic archipelago, England, Scotland and Ireland, in terms of their continental relations and how they were perceived by French, by Spanish, by Dutch observers. So right at the beginning of this century, I mean, the time period you look at starts with the abortive Spanish Armada invasion. Elizabeth I is on the throne. How was she seen? Somebody who has now become, you know, one of the great Britons, somebody that there's, you know, there's umpteen books and films been made about. But how did Europe see Elizabeth I at the time? Well, I may be in a slight minority among historians because I don't really share this great Gloriana um, admiration industry. She seems to me to be remarkably negligent in some ways in terms of planning for the succession. She also had pursued, uh, certainly compared to the Stuarts, um, a policy of lack of engagement with continental Europe. And one of the big differences that characterises the 17th century is the Stuarts' sort of extensive sort of engagement with uh, other embassies and and their cosmopolitanism. But I think to the rest of Europe looking um, at Elizabeth, well, uh, to most of the other Catholic superpowers, she's a heretic, she's a bastard, she is somebody who has kept out uh, the legitimate Catholic heir in Catholic eyes. But I think the most shocking event to Catholic Europe is her sanctioning of the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots. And that's really where Devil Land begins. The idea that one anointed queen could execute another anointed queen who had not only been a queen consort in France, but a queen regnant in Scotland is is shocking beyond words. And then it also contextualises a lot of the continental reaction to the execution of Charles I in 1649. I mean, a lot of people say, well, remember, the English also executed his grandmother. This idea of the, how to say it, the re, the constant threat of Catholicism coming back to England throughout this century, leading to, you know, literally until right at the end of this time period, you're looking at the Dutch invasion and William of Orange. That's also a constant theme of the book. Definitely. And a lot of this is about sort of geopolitics, this fear of sort of constant Catholic encirclement. I mean, England is, you know, it's it's a relatively small state. It has a young Protestant church and it doesn't have large standing armies. It's part of an unstable multiple monarchy of which Ireland is also still predominantly Catholic and offers a tempting sort of side door for continental powers to think about invasion. Uh, It's also I've got Scotland to the north, which has lots of long-standing historic dynastic cultural ties to France and other continental countries, and which could offer a sort of tempting backdoor. So this fear of foreign, if not always invasion, perhaps foreign intervention or influence is definitely one of the themes of the book. And, you know, really, I suppose I was also interested in different forms of periodization. You know, we often think of the Stuart era sort of beginning in 1603, but I wanted really to look at that century, 1588, that begins with a failed seaborne invasion, the Spanish Armada, but ends with a successful seaborne invasion in the form of sort of William of Orange. When I mentioned that, you know, this is a book about constant foreign interference, of course, at this time, when we say foreign, we also mean Scotland. And as you said, you know, after Elizabeth I, we see James of Scotland on the throne of England as James I. And during his reign, there's this antipathy towards, I guess, what would eventually become Great Britain, you know, the idea of, of a united country, which I wasn't aware about until, until reading of it in your book. So tell us something about that. One of the other sort of themes of the book I really wanted to emphasise was the extent to which the Stuarts are perceived as an alien, imported foreign dynasty by many of their English subjects, a dynasty that couldn't necessarily be 
securely relied upon to promote the national interest. I, I began my career really as a, as a historian of Scotland. So I've always you know, regarded James as a, as a very experienced king. And, but often in English history, one gets this idea that he arrives at sort of 1603 as this sort of new king. He certainly comes with a new idea, which is to consolidate his dynastic acquisition of England into some, uh, some unitary state of Great Britain. That doesn't land very well with the English parliament or with English common lawyers. And, and that idea begins to uh, you know, recede. And part of the instability of 17th century England is just working out those relations with Ireland and Scotland, and certainly in the mid-century civil wars, the numbers of times that an invasion is led from Scotland into England is, is, is remarkable and doesn't make the English sort of feel secure, either in their rulers or, or necessarily in their borders. You mentioned how the Stuart dynasty approached things differently to the Tudors, and you used the Stuart dynasty in the book as a way, as a sort of prism for looking at the tumultuous politics and the various diplomatic relations with the continent of this time. Tell us something more about how they did things differently. Well, if one thinks about James um, as King of Scotland, uh, this is somebody who uh, had ruled a country very much on Europe's periphery, but had extensive continental contacts. So whereas Elizabeth I hadn't maintained an embassy in any Catholic country except France and had really pursued a policy of sort of English isolationism almost in terms of sort of diplomatic contacts. James has a huge number of ambassadors coming through Scotland. That's exactly what he maintains when he moves south. And so the English find not only do they have sort of an expectation that there will be foreign ambassadors in, in a huge range of states. I mean, smaller German duchies, Italian states, uh, Scandinavia. They also also have a, a working royal family for the first time. And the, the Stuarts are a remarkably cosmopolitan dynasty, and one probably tends to underestimate the extent to which much of that continental entanglements and influence arises through their wives, queen's consorts, and, and the sort of extended family. Each of the Stuart monarchs in the 17th century has a queen consort who is Catholic, um, I, you know, so covertly in Anna of Denmark's case, but overtly in, say, the case of Henrietta Maria. They all have their own dynastic confessional links to the continent. One of the other things I wanted to do in Devilland as well was restore the importance of the Palatine branch. So James VI and first has three children that survive to adulthood. Um, Prince Henry dies aged 18 in 1612, but his sister Elizabeth uh, marries the Palatine elector and produces a very large dynasty from whom the Hanoverians are eventually descended. Uh, and then the younger brother, Charles, uh, is the one who succeeds as Charles I. But throughout the whole 17th century, the descendants of Elizabeth, his, um, Charles I's sister Elizabeth, also play a very important role, both as often uh, a sort of counterpoint to the Stuart dynasty and its failings. Even in the civil wars, they play a very direct role. Prince Rupert and Prince Maurice fight on the royalist side. Uh, the oldest brother sides with Parliament. And in a way, just as the civil wars divided every family in Britain, it also divides the Stuart dynasty itself. During this period, London has become the biggest city in the world, the most popular city in the world. During this century, we see various different events like plague and the Great Fire. The Stuarts themselves have a rather ambivalent relationship with the city. Tell us something about that. Yes, I think there is a difference between many sort of continental dynasties where one often thinks about the main sort of palaces or seats of government very centrally located. You know, London is divided really between the city of London, uh, which is very well fortified, has ancient uh, systems of politics and municipal governance. And then to the west, 
Westminster, sort of Whitehall, much less uh, securely defended. And there is friction really throughout the period between the city of London, which contains obviously a huge amount of wealth, and the impoverished Stuart dynasty and their often tumultuous relations with Parliament. And certainly when the civil wars break out, uh, Charles's decision to flee London after his unsuccessful attempt to arrest MPs in early 1642 means really that he loses control of the capital and all of its wealth and all of its power and doesn't return to the capital until uh, he faces trial in 1649. And just to finish this off, can I just ask how it felt to be um, to be shortlisted for the Wollstone Prize? Oh, it was a terrific, terrific honour. It was kind of thrilling. It's, um, I think, the twin remit of the prize, you know, sort of academic scholarship of the highest order and accessibility to a general audience. And both of those things are very important to me. So to sort of bring them together is, is, is really terrific. So I've been talking to Claire Jackson. We've been talking about Devilland, England under siege, 1588 to 1688, which is out in the UK from Allen Lane. Claire, thank you so much for telling me about it. Thank you very much for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.